You ready to step into the Word together? All right, let's do that. Grab your Bible or your iPad or whatever you're using. And if you wouldn't mind, reach into your bulletin. Find this little note page, if you're not familiar with that, part of the drill. And uh, that will be of help along the way. And it has been a few weeks now since I have been standing here at this point in a Sunday morning service. In fact, since the last time, <laughs> since the last time, thank you, Maria. Since the last time <laughs> I was in this place, I have become a grandpa again, fourth time, which is awesome. Had some great time with family in Colorado and in New Mexico on vacation. And then along with you, uh, I have been back for the last couple of weeks, but enjoying Sunday mornings as Jeremy brought the word to us and blessed by that. But I am very thankful to the Lord that I get to stand in this place with you again. And I'm excited, church family, about the opportunity that is ours to step into a brand new study series together today. As, as that note page reveals, we join up this morning with the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, which is a book, safe to say, that is like no other book in our Bibles, the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you aren't there already... Would you join me in that place? It's a little 12-chapter book sitting almost at the center of our Bibles, and it is unique to be sure among all of the pages of Scripture. Were you and I to take a guided tour of the Bible, when we arrived at the book of Job, our tour guide would say, and now we are entering the region of wisdom literature in the Bible which is a designation that has been assigned to five Old Testament books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. They are there on the next to the bottom shelf on the left side, the pink books, Wisdom Literature. That's the kind of the overall designation. And these five books are some of the most beautiful and beautifully written in all of Scripture. They deal with life. Job, who loves God, loses everything in his life except his faith. Psalms, well, it sings and it cries its way through life's ups and downs. Proverbs urges us to flee foolish, short-sighted life choices and practice consistently a godly wisdom that's found in the word. The Song of Solomon presents the beauty of romantic love in the context of married life. And then, <laughs> and then there's Ecclesiastes. Some are quick to say without reservation that this is the most difficult book in the Bible to understand. And I will leave you to make that judgment on your own after we've had a chance to step into it and be with it for a little while. So what then is this little piece of wisdom literature about and why is it going to garner our attention for the next several weeks? Well, Ecclesiastes seeks to answer a really important, timely, and personally relevant to you and me question. And the question is this, how do I make sense of my life in this world that makes no sense? How do I do that? It's a world that is not fair. It is often cruel and unpredictable. Justice is elusive. Evil seems to triumph over goodness. 
Hard work doesn't always pay off. The good die young and the wicked grow old. And it just goes on and on and on like this, generation after generation after generation. How do I make sense of my life in this crazy world that makes no sense? Ecclesiastes seeks to answer that question. And the book accomplishes its goal, church family. It does answer this question, but the human author takes a rather long and convoluted, twisting and painfully winding road to get us to the answer. One person says, when I read Ecclesiastes, much of the time I feel like I'm reading a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside of an enigma and covered by a conundrum. <laughs> and you know, I don't think I could agree, or I, could, I, I don't think I would disagree with that, that assessment. One commentator said, think of Ecclesiastes as the only book of the Bible written on a Monday morning. <laughs> that, that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? But, but church family, isn't that when we need an intensely practical working faith the most? On a Monday morning? I mean, Sunday faith is great. Yay for Sunday faith. But Monday faith, man, that's the real test. When every day feels like a push. When life is really hard and sad and disappointing and feels like one unending ugh. When the grind of of work, home, sleep, work, home, sleep, work, home, sleep, numbs us to the the really big question, what's the point of this in my life? Do you ever ask that question? What's the point? Ecclesiastes answers the question, what's the point? It answers the question, how do I make sense of my life in this world that makes no sense? But, as I said, it does this in the most indirect and at times puzzling ways. In fact, it isn't until the end of the book, until chapter 12, the last chapter, that the author really unveils fully the answer to what makes life in this world sensible and rich and meaningful, satisfying, purpose-driven and joy filled. For 11 chapters, he teases us by pointing out life's absurdities, its endless cycles, and its repeating, confusing conundrums, only hinting along the way that there might even be a solution or an answer. Now, before you think, oh, great, Tim, a series about the absurdity of life. Just what I need. That's going to help me. How can this be helpful to me? Well, the truth is, church family, it's not a series about the absurdity of life. It's a series about making sense of our lives in the midst of all of the absurdities. That's what the series is about. And though not an easy book for us to take on, we are told that in, in, the, in the New Testament, in a couple of different places, that all Scripture is Holy Spirit-inspired, and therefore it's going to be profitable for us if we step into it and spend time with it and give our best to it. We're going to come out ahead. Ecclesiastes is going to guide us to joy and true enjoyment of this life, 
It's just going to get us there by coming through the back door. So you've got to know that about the book. Case in point, J.I. Packer. Well-known, beloved Bible scholar. You know his name, many of you? Familiar with his name? J.I. Packer? Not a lot of you. Okay, well, author of many books. I've read a lot of his books. He confesses that Ecclesiastes is his favorite book of the Bible. Not Romans, not the Gospel of John. He says the reason that Ecclesiastes is his favorite book in the Bible is because by nature he is a cynical and questioning man. That's how he looks at life. And God used Ecclesiastes powerfully in his life to show him how he needed to see his life and to live his life in spite of its absurdities, in spite of its disappointments, its repetitive sameness and its conundrums. Now, I can't promise you that when we're done with this series that Ecclesiastes will be your favorite book of the Bible, but we won't know if we don't try, right? Right? You game with me? Are you game? You don't really get a choice in this at all, do you? <laughs> you just got to say yes. Yeah. So church family, this morning, our goal uh, with the time that we have left is I'm, I'm going to invite you to join me on what I'm simply going to call a reconnaissance flight over the entire book so that you and I together get a lay of the land here at the front end of this new series. It's kind of like what the president does when there is some major disaster in our country and he flies over that area and he assesses the situation. Or when a a military general flies over a battlefield before engaging his forces. Only we're not going to fly over a disaster area this morning or a battlefield But as the title uh, on your note page would indicate, we're going to fly over a diary this morning. A diary of one man's desperate search to make sense of his life, to find meaning in his life. One man's desperate search to locate the source of true fulfillment and satisfaction and purpose and joy in his life. So as you climb aboard with me and we begin our flyover of Ecclesiastes, maybe the best place for us to start is by meeting the author. And this we do in the very first verse of chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Church family, who is this? This is Solomon, isn't it? This is Solomon. This is none other than one of the greatest kings in all of Israel's Old Testament history. He's going to be God's human instrument in writing some other Old Testament books that you and I love. And he's the one that the Bible says was the wisest man who has ever lived. First Kings chapter 3 verse 12 tells us that about Solomon. And so this being the case, this being who he is, we instantly know that we are stepping into the diary of a man who had time enough and money enough and skill and insight and wisdom enough and energy enough and the opportunity to be able to search into every corner, into every wrinkle of life in in search of meaning, in search of satisfaction and purpose and fulfillment. He can do it if anybody can do it. He writes this diary in the latter years of his life, probably around 930 B.C. But as we're going to see, he could have written this yesterday. It is so timely 
and so up-to-date and current. And then what about, what about uh, the, the title of Solomon's diary? Ecclesiastes. That is a strange word, is it not? Even by Bible standards, that's a weird word. Now, that title actually comes out of the opening verse, out of verse 1, from the word preacher. This diary was originally written in Hebrew, and the Hebrew word for preacher is koheleth. Koheleth. I won't ask you to say that. But it means one who stands before an assembly, a preacher. Koheleth. Now, the Latin equivalent of that Hebrew word, koheleth, is Ecclesiastes, the preacher. So Solomon is going to stand before us for the next several weeks, the assembly, and he's going to tell us about a journey, a desperate search that he once made, seeking to make sense of his life, this life. But from the very beginning, right here at the very outset, with the very first words out of his mouth, Solomon says that his search proved futile. It proved empty. It was meaningless. In fact, this is how he says it in verse 2, ESV. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is, say it, church, vanity. And this is going to become one of Solomon's pet phrases throughout the whole diary. We're going to come on to this no less than 38 times in 12 chapters. All is vanity. And by vanity, he's not thinking about a person who is proud or vain, uh, is all caught up in themselves and thinks they're all that. Not, not vanity in that way. The Hebrew word is difficult to translate into English, but the, 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 the word literally means vapor or mist. Vapor of vapors. All is vapor. Now maybe your, your translation, your rendering is meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And if you're a fan of of Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, The Message, here's how he renders this verse. Smoke. Nothing but smoke. There's nothing to anything. It's all smoke. I looked for meaning in life, and I came up empty, Solomon says. I looked for purpose in life, and the sum was zero. It's all vapor. It's all hollow. It's empty. Nothing I saw, nothing I attempted, produced, initiated, participated in, nothing in this life resulted in anything for me that really satisfied, really fulfilled, really gave meaning to my life. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Are you encouraged? (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) Church family, maybe in just two verses, you can already see why some people aren't even sure if this book belongs in the Bible. I mean that. That's not a joke. There are people who don't think this book should be here. There's nothing to anything. It's all smoke. Now, we know that that is a message totally foreign to the entire tenor of Scripture, right? This flies in the face of the central message of the Bible. And I hope it flies in the face of the reality 
in your life as a Christian. Life, abundantly lived life and filled with purpose and meaning and direction and a future. That is at the very heart of the Bible and the Bible has no message if it isn't that one. Which compels us to ask the wisest man who ever lived, the guy who had literally an endless supply of resources with which to discover something in life that gives him meaning and purpose. Why? Why was it such an empty, meaningless search for you, Solomon? And the answer to that question and the key that unlocks the whole book to our understanding is found in a little phrase in the next verse, verse 3 of chapter 1. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils? Where, church? Under the sun. Take your pen, your highlighter, whatever, mark in your margin and just... Key to the book, right here. Circle those three words, under the sun. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This is going to be one of the preacher's most often repeated expressions. Almost 30 times he will use it. An average of more than twice a chapter. Solomon's perspective and the perspective, quite frankly, of most of the world that you and I live in and most of the people that are around us is an under-the-sun-only perspective. Solomon's diary represents a look at life largely from a purely horizontal perspective under the sun. It will be a search for a purposeful, sense-making life from Ground level only. He's going to be on a journey through life viewed almost exclusively from earth, under the sun. On rare occasions, Almond's going to poke his head above the dust of the material earthly life, and he's going to look down from above, and it's going to make sense. But Ecclesiastes is this under the sun look at life when God is left out of your life. And that results in a depressing, hollow, empty assessment of life. As verse 2 said, there's nothing to anything. It's all vanity under the sun. Now, we're not surprised when we hear that as a Christian. That's what we'd expect, someone might say, when God and life in Him, eternal life in Him, through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus for us is left out of your life, right? We would expect it to be pretty difficult living under the sun without something bigger than ourselves in this world. Life would feel mostly short, unpredictable, marked by pain, disappointment, and missing an in-game goal and focus that makes sense of it all. It's what our neighbors and our friends and our culture without Jesus live with every day, church. They live with an under-the-sun perspective, and that's all. And as we get into this diary in the weeks ahead, we're going to see just how deeply the pessimism and the skepticism and the emptiness of living really is for anyone who lives only under the sun. 
And if we don't see this, if we don't understand this key in verse 3 at the very beginning, we're not going to understand the book. We need to understand this is where it's coming from. It's coming at us from an under-the-sun perspective. So after verse 3, Solomon is going to take us with him on a journey in search of a meaningful life. And he's going to take us to all the places that he went looking to make sense of it all. Went looking for gratifying purpose and fulfillment in his life. And here's where, given our time constraints, we really need to, we need to push the throttle into high gear for our first time flyover of the book. And over this tortured terrain, we really need to move forward fast. So are you ready to go? Hold on with me, and we're going to take a, book, take a look at the entire book. You ready? Okay. All right. So from his under-the-sun point of view, Solomon says at the bottom of your note page, the first place I turned for meaning was to nature and the endless, untiring cycle of life that I observed in nature. How many people in our day are doing that very thing, church, looking to nature for meaning and fulfillment in their lives? How many? Millions. Idlewild has lots of them, right? (laughs) Lovers of nature, worshipers of nature, trying to find meaning in nature. In verse 4, generations come and go. In verse 5, the sun rises and sets. In verse 6, the wind blows on a relentless, never-ending course. In verse 7, the rivers flow into the sea. They evaporate. It rains. The rivers run into the sea again, and the sea never gets full. And it just goes on and on and on like this under the sun. Nature goes through its relentless, restless cycles on and on. And on, millennia after millennia after millennia. And we get our one little tiny bite out of that. A whole life, just a mist, a vapor. At the end, Solomon observes after spending time in this arena, he says, nothing is remembered, least of all people. And their pitifully short lives. Look at verse 11 of chapter 1. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. And in verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a what? Striving or chasing after wind. Now, that's a Monday morning take on life, isn't it? By the way, that little phrase at the end, striving after wind, chasing after wind, that is going to be another one of Solomon's favorite phrases in this diary. And you can just hear the frustration and the pessimism in his voice. Nature didn't do it for him. And so the preacher thinks, well, maybe meaning in life is hidden in a self-focused, self-indulging life where it's all about me. And if you flip your note page over, he goes hard in chapter 2 
after an unrestrained life. And he doesn't look, overlook anything. He tries building projects and gardening and buying everything that he wants and owning stuff and owning people, slaves. He tries everything that he thinks will fulfill him. He dives into the arts and into music and entertainment and he gives himself to unbridled sensual pleasures. As much as he could want. And then he says in verse 10, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. I did it. I did it to the full with full abandon. I made it all about me. But then he quickly says in verse 11 of chapter 2, Then I considered... All that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained. Where, church? Under the sun. Well, self-indulgence proved to be an empty, fruitless dead end. So he says, I'll try wisdom. I'll pursue wisdom in this life and maybe it will hold meaning for me. But when he did that, he discovered this in verse 16, chapter 2. For of the wise as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. He comes to the same place people today come to when they take a critical and thorough examination of their life and when it's lived under the sun, this is what you come up with. There's nothing. There's nothing. And so as he continues his desperate search, he turns down a road called philosophy, thinking that maybe the intellectual path is where meaning in his life will lie. Humanism is the philosophy of our day. It sees man as merely an animal. No more, no less. We're just one more animal on a planet with animals. That's us. Humanism says that. And if you want to know the truth, humanism is the religion in America. It really is. You're an animal. Make the most of the little bit of time you have on it because this is all you get. Humanism. You probably know people who believe just like this right now that we're just animals. It's our culture. But guess what? It was part of Solomon's culture as well in his day. Look what he says in chapter 3, verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of a man goes upward and the spirit of the beasts goes downward into the earth. Can you believe that's in your Bible? Those words? So obscured at this point is Solomon's vision here under the sun that he actually utters pure heresy. This is heretical. 
what happens to people and animals is the same? Really? That's not what the Bible says. Mankind is the image bearer of the living God. We are very different from the animals. We have an eternal nature. The only question is where are we going to spend that eternal nature? With God forever or apart from Him, right? We're not like the animals. We're very different. In chapter 4, his search continues, and after pondering a bit, he says, well, you know, maybe a really satisfying life lies in position and rank in the world. And so having a, a big office and a solid oak desk and a chairman of the board on the door of your office, maybe that's where meaning lies. Maybe president. Maybe, maybe try to become the president. Maybe life lived in the Oval Office will be fulfilling. Climb as high as you can so that you can hear as many people as possible tell you how great you are. There's a meaningful life. And so Solomon ventures into this arena, and he can, man. He can. He is king in Israel, and he is so great and well-known that emperors and rulers and queens come from all over the world just to hang out with him. He's got position. But then he writes in chapter 4, verses 13 to 16, and if I can direct your attention to the screens, I'm going to read this section out of the Living Bible paraphrase just to give us a sense of what Solomon says. It's better to be a poor but wise youth than to be an old and foolish king who refuses all advice. Such a lad could come from prison and succeed. He might even become king, though born in poverty. Everyone is eager to help a youth like that, even to help him usurp the throne. He can become the leader of millions of people and be very popular. But then the younger generation grows up around him and rejects him. So again, it's all foolishness. Chasing the wind. What's the difference, this disillusioned searcher asks? In the end, the position that you attain in this life means nothing. Somebody's going to take it from you. It's chasing after wind. In chapter 5, money and wealth will prove to be another dead-end cul-de-sac for Solomon. And he ought to know something about this topic. He's one of the wealthiest men who has ever lived. But look at what he says in chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is what? Vanity. Meaningless. Well, you talk about a message that our culture refuses to hear or to believe today. Money is for countless numbers everything. It's all about getting the money. But it never satisfies, Solomon says. And this is a guy who, who couldn't spend all of his money if he had a hundred lifetimes. He ought to know something about this. It's chasing after wind. Believe me, I know, I tried it. Chapter 6 carries the same message forward. And then in chapter 7, we hear this diary keeper say, in verse 15 of chapter 7, in this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, a righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. In other words, 
Solomon says, the good die young and the bad live long. What's fair about that? What's right about that? That makes no sense at all. Fairness and justice, they don't exist under the sun, says Solomon. It's meaningless. It's empty. It's not fair. And then in chapters 8, 9, 10, and the first part of 11, we come on to an extended discourse in which Solomon shares some of his legendary wisdom because every now and then he, he will poke his head above his dusty earthbound life and look down on it from a, bet, a better vantage point. But once more we hear this under the sun's song in chapter 9, verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and what? Chance happen to them all. Time and chance. Time and chance. Life is chance. Under the sun. Yeah, it's all you've got. Just chance. And the conventional wisdom of man doesn't hold, uh, uh, Solomon observes. The fastest don't always win the race. The wise go hungry. The strongest and the best are sometimes the real losers. The smart aren't always the rich. Favor smiles on the foolish. And they're the rich many times. It's all chance. Life under the sun, it's a game, a roll of the dice, a spin of the lotto wheel. Meaningless, empty, Solomon would say. Well, are you encouraged, church? (laughs) Are your spirits lifted in the moment? It's been quite a despairing, pessimistic, empty journey thus far. There's nothing to anything. Verse 2 of chapter 1 said. Now and again, for isolated moments, Solomon will, will shift his gaze from the purely horizontal to the vertical. But it isn't until we come to the closing verses of chapter 11 and move on into chapter 12 that the wisest man in the world really wises up and looks up. But directed as he has been by the Holy Spirit, Solomon's diary entries, as depressing as they are, have been strategically and methodically laid out on purpose, church family, so that by the time you and I as readers get through 11 chapters of this heavy stuff, we are practically clamoring for the answer to what makes life meaningful and fulfilling and purpose-filled. We are hungering for the answer. And so now he's ready to reveal what we, thankfully, church family, already know to be true. Before any life under the sun will have meaning and really satisfy, it must be a life into which God has been integrated. Yes? Yes? Okay, great. It has to be a life of faith lived under God and before God and to God, even as it's being lived under the sun, if it's going to be a meaningful life. Then it's a life that takes on purpose and focus and fullness and expectancy and and joy. 
as opposed to emptiness and meaningless wind-chasing vanity. And so we come to the end of chapter 11 in the diary, and Solomon essentially says, Reader, reader, listen, don't waste any of your precious time and energy conducting a futile search for meaning in your life in all those dead-end places that I have already been. Learn from me. Learn with me. While in your prime, while you are young or not so young, get your life right with the God who made you. Get your life ordered under him, in him, because there is meaning to everything if you include God in your life. In verse 9 of chapter 11, Solomon says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, all this stuff that's available to you under the sun, know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. In other words, live your life to the full. Live, live it within, though, the revealed boundaries of God, knowing that you're going to stand before him one day. He created you. You're going to answer to him for how you've lived your life. Include him from the very beginning as a young person. In chapter 12, verse 1, remember your creator in the days of your what? Your youth. Don't leave God out of your life if you want it to be all that it can be, all that God wants it to be for you. Include him. And then in chapter 12, verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. You say, wait, Pastor Tim, you left out the word duty. Well, thank you for catching that. I did that on purpose, of course. And the reason I did that, church family, is because the translators supply that word for us to complete the thought to our English minds. But the word duty does not actually appear in the original Hebrew text. It simply says, this is the whole of man, or this is what makes a person truly whole. Fear God and obey his commandments. Fear God. Not in the sense of, of cringing before him like a terrified child, but, but reverence him. Yield your life to him. Bow the knee of your heart to him. Acknowledge him as your God and your maker. Have a loving respect and an awe for him. Include him in your life. Fear him. Reverence him. And keep his commandments. And of course, church family, what is the greatest commandment of all from God to us as we live under the sun. What's his greatest commandment of all? Believe Jesus, right? Believe in Jesus. Love God, yes, and believe in Jesus whom he sent into this world under the sun so that he might pay the sin debt that we could never pay. How does John 3.16 read? For God so loved the world, the world under the sun, right? That world the world filled with sinful you and me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. Not an empty, meaningless life, an eternal life. 
Anyone, no matter who they are. This verse says anyone who responds to God's love for them by believing in the God-man, Jesus, that he died in their place for their sin, rose from the dead, triumphant over sin, death, and the grave, will not only never have to worry about living an empty life followed by a meaningless death, but rather is given a brand new life to live above the sun. An eternal, never-ending life marked by meaning and purpose and joy. Do you know Jesus? The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is what makes a person whole. Jesus said it this way. I came that they may have what? Life and have it abundantly. The very opposite of meaningless, vain, empty smoke. Lord willing, church family, next time we're going to step more fully into chapter 1 and begin to explore these arenas that Solomon went into on his desperate search. But here's the cool thing. You've already found the answer to the question, haven't you? Of where does real meaning in this life, where is it found? You already have the answer, don't you? It's Jesus. Let's pray together. It is you, Jesus. It is all you. It is it is you. You are what makes this life amazing, rich, wonderful, meaningful, intensely satisfying, and hope-filled. It is you. As we are here in this room, it's possible that, that someone is in this room. Maybe, maybe you came to, to the Bible church today and you're not even sure why you're here. You're not even sure what drew you into this place. But, but one thing's for sure, you're on a search. You're looking for something to fill an empty space in your life. A space that, that only God can fill. But you've not known how to fill that space. You don't know what it means to be yet in a personal relationship with the living God who loved you enough to send his son to die for you. But you're hearing that truth now. And God is inviting you into a relationship with him through faith in his son. And if we can help you to better understand that and to step onto that that road and, and, and get to that place in your spiritual journey, we would love to do that. Don't leave today without chasing me down or a friend down and Let's, let's, let's walk this road together to a meaningful, eternally satisfying life with Jesus. And church family, as we step into this place, my prayer over all of us is that, that the Holy Spirit would just ignite our hearts to drink in the truth of Ecclesiastes over the next several weeks. Heavenly Father, I ask you by your Spirit to bring it to life for us. May we learn well from it and then be able to speak effectively into a culture that is trying to find meaning under the sun only. We have the answer. Make us bold, make us sharp, make us ready. And we'll just tell you this, Lord Jesus, we love you. Father, we love you. Holy Spirit, we love you. But only because you loved us first. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.